investment in the story. That'll be exciting for people, and we'll need more space. And that'll be great for our volunteers. And so uh, if you're serving in kids' ministry and only get to come to church once or twice a month, or maybe never, uh, you'll get to come every week if you want to. Uh, But what that's going to mean is we need twice as many volunteer positions. And so if you're serving in Gen Kids now, uh, if you're serving once a month, would you consider serving twice a month? If you're not serving at all, um, maybe it's a great time to, to get in the game and start serving. If you're uh, on the host team or some other place, you could serve you know, three, four times a month and still be able to come to church. And so it's a great move for us. It's going to be a lot of fun come this fall. We haven't announced a date yet, but I'm really excited about that. Uh, but uh, the best part for me was just being able to worship as one church in one location. You know, uh, I love the multi-site thing that we're doing here. I love seeing new people who wouldn't come to church unless we had this location in Carmel. But there's something special that happens when brothers and sisters in Christ get together and worship together, when there's unity in one place. You know, the Bible even speaks to this. Psalm 133.1 says this. It says, how good and pleasant it is uh, when God's people live together in unity. You know, because really, if we're united by a common bond, you know, if our common bond is the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we should really be in unity, shouldn't we? I mean, as a church, we should be in unity. That means being able to agree on the big things, uh, even when we disagree on the little things. But that's not always the case. Now, you think about it, even uh, people who call themselves Christians, people who are in the church, are in wild disagreement about what's really important. That's why we have Catholics and Protestants, right? And that's why we have, in the Protestants, we have, you know, Methodists, and we have Presbyterians, and we have Episcopals, and, and we have Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee, and Church of God Anderson, Indiana. You know, that's why we have all these splits. It's why even today in the church, you have everything from homosexual clergy and gay marriage to God hates gays. And neither of those is biblical, and and certainly neither of them are what we're called to focus on. And so this morning, as we continue in the story, we're going to see firsthand the effects that division can have as we look at the story of Israel. And while we're not going to spend a lot of time talking directly about division today, I want to say a few things up front about division, especially in light of what happened this week uh, with some Supreme Court decisions. You know, I saw an, an article this week from CBS News. It's, a, it's an older article. It's maybe six months old, but I just saw it this week that claims that Americans politically and ideologically are more divided than at any point in the last 25 years. And it's not just Americans, okay, but we're seeing growing division in the church too, especially when you consider this issue of gay marriage that came out in the courts this week. Uh, And and as we address this, I just wanted to take a couple minutes as we talk about division in Israel to talk about maybe what our response should be as a church. You know, first of all, I believe this. I believe that God loves everyone. I believe that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and that the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ is available to everyone. I believe that. I believe that God's plan for marriage, his design for marriage is one man and one woman. Now, I know that's not the popular view in our country. And, 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 and so honestly, I was not surprised with the Supreme Court decision this week. Uh, and while that may put us out of the mainstream, that's kind of where Jesus has called us to be, is out of the mainstream. And while I don't want to spend too much time talking about it today, I, I do want to talk about the question of this. What should be our response? Like as a church, as Christians, as followers of Christ, how should we respond to the changes in our society today and the question on the definition of marriage. Well, first of all is this. I think we should all strive to make growing in our relationship with Jesus our goal. Every day, that should be our goal, to grow in our relationship with Christ. Number two is this. Invest in your own marriage. You know, don't worry so much about everybody else's marriage. How's your marriage doing? You know, we just finished a marriage series here at Genesis Church. Got lots of great feedback from married people and single people about how that impacted their life. But, but how's it impacting your life now, you know, three weeks later? Invest in your own marriage. 
Number three is this. Know truth and boldly speak truth, but don't be stupid. I mean, we all have Facebook pages. Some of us have Twitter feeds. Uh, we, all, we can say anything we want on those pages, but just because you can say it doesn't mean you should. And even if it's your opinion, that doesn't mean you have to let everybody know about it. Don't be stupid when it comes to social media. Number four is this, and this is the most important, I think. Let love and grace be the method in which you do all things. In all things with love. I mean, speak the truth boldly, but with love. I think that's our responsibility. You know, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And I don't want to spend any more time talking about this because if I do, I'm afraid that's all you're going to remember from this morning. And we've got a great story this morning about division and what causes division and how to prevent division. But I wanted to address it because I think some will take a look at this decision and say the world is getting darker. But that just allows for the light of Jesus Christ to shine that much brighter in a dark world. And so I hope that will be our response. And in a church like Genesis, I hope that we can be a light that shines into some of those dark places. So would you just pray with me? Father God, I thank you for these people um, that are gathered here to hear your truth and the truth from your word. And um, Lord, I know sometimes it's not popular and sometimes it's not mainstream, but God, I, I do. I declare that, that that's exactly where you've called us to be, that you've called us to be different and set apart, and we just strive to do that. Lord, we fall short all the time, uh, but we know that your grace is there. Your grace is enough for every one of us, and so I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um, my name is Steve Wallen, by the way. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church in Carmel. And uh, today we're re- continuing or returning, I guess, to our series called The Story. And, and it's based on a book called The Story. And if you're new here, uh, maybe you don't have that with you. I don't have a copy of The Story with me this morning. I forgot mine at home. Um, but it's based on a book called The Story. Uh, and, and as a church, what we're doing is we're going through the entire story of the Bible this year. In 31 weeks, uh, the story is biblical scripture, NIV scripture, broken into 31 chapters. And it tells the entire story of the Bible. But if you don't have the story, don't worry, because on the back of your worship program, uh, there's a reading plan. And we'd love for you to read along with us, whether you have a copy of the story and you're following that, or you're following this reading plan from Scripture. uh, We'd love for you to be a part of that. Read ahead. So hopefully you've read chapter 14 for today, um, and hopefully you'll read chapter 15 for next week. But if you haven't, we still want you to come. All right, but we we like you to read ahead because we can't possibly tell the entire story here on Sunday morning. We can't tell you the whole thing that's happening, okay? So as we continue in the story today, we're going to see the same kind of political intrigue and infighting at work in the nation of Israel that we sometimes see in the United States. But before we do that, I know we've been away from it for a few weeks, so let's catch up on where we've been. Uh, we We started in the beginning with God. Because God was in the beginning. In the beginning, God created man in his image. Uh, But among all the people, everybody that God created, there was one group of people that God set apart to be his treasured possession. It's uh, through a man named Abraham, it's his descendants, and specifically through his grandson Jacob, comes this group of people that we know as the nation of Israel. And God promised Abraham that he would have as many descendants as there were stars in the sky. And that this nation of Israel uh, would be uh, God's chosen people and that he, they would be placed in a, a land that God promised to them. We call it the promised land because God promised it to Israel. That makes sense, right? And so this land would be a fertile land. Uh, it would be a land where they could not just survive but thrive. It's, and uh, like I said, we call it the promised land. But, but what we found out is that these people, even these people specifically chosen by God to be a holy nation, they weren't perfect. That They spent some time following God, but they also spent some time wandering away. And they were forced to live with the consequences of that wandering, as we all are. And, and so they endured a famine. 
but they were rescued by God uh, through a young man by the name of Joseph. Uh, They endured slavery in Egypt, but they were rescued by God uh, through a man named Moses. And then they had to endure 40 years of wandering in the desert, but they were rescued by God through a brave warrior by the name of Joshua who finally led them to the promised land. You know, hundreds of years after God promised it to Abraham, they finally end up in the promised land. But, but even then, they weren't happy. Okay, God's people uh, who were selected by God uh, had everything they needed, but they weren't happy. They looked around and they saw all these other nations who were being led by powerful kings, warrior kings, and, and Israel decided, I want that. We, we want some of that. And so they asked God for a king. And so in this last section of the story that we did right before our marriage series, we talked about the first three kings of Israel. Uh, First, there was a man by the name of Saul who was a warrior. And even though Saul was chosen by God to be the king, he soon walked away from God. And we said that his heart continued to harden toward God, that he had a, a hard heart toward God. And then there was a king named David. And we said that David had a devoted heart. He was devoted to God. And even though he messed up, even though he wasn't perfect, that as he went through his life, his heart became more and more devoted to God. And God called David a man after my own heart. And after David came his son Solomon. And as we talked about Solomon, we found that he had more wisdom and more money and more wives, if you remember that, than anyone could ever want. But he was never able to be happy because he had a divided heart. But despite all their trouble and all their shortcomings, these three kings had something in common. And it's that they were all able to lead the entire nation of Israel. Well, that's going to change today as we look in chapter 14 of the story. And so if you have your Bible, you might open into 1 Kings 11. Uh, We're going to start right at the end of 1 Kings 11. If you don't have your Bible, if you have uh, the story, I think it's on page 193. I checked that last night, though, uh, before I came in. So you may have to look. But it's the first page of chapter 14 in the story. So we're going to start 1 Kings 11. Uh, 42 and 43. If you don't have either of those, the verses will be up here on the screen uh, behind me. You're welcome to follow along on the stage TVs right there. Those. Uh, Verse 42, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel. The writer of 1 Kings makes a point to say that, over all of Israel, because that's going to change. Ruled over all of Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. So here's a chance for a real celebration. You know, Solomon uh, was a good king, an interesting king, had his moments, uh, but at the end of his life wasn't all that popular in Israel. And now there's a new man coming. It's a, it's a stable transfer of power. We're within the same family. Uh, we've got an opportunity to represent unity. Okay, after all, Rehoboam was a grandson of David. David was a very popular king in Israel. He was a hero in Israel. Uh, like I said, the power transferred completely within the family. We got a chance for a parade, a party, a five-degree shift in the way we rule. And, and, all of a sudden, and, and Rehoboam goes down as one of the most popular kings in history. And even today, people would be naming their kids Rehoboam which might be a little awkward. Uh, Maybe you'd have to call him Reho or something like that because it's kind of a long name, but people would be naming their kids Rehoboam, you know, but that's not what happened. And to understand why, I want to introduce you to another man who plays a critical role in this story, a man named Jeroboam. Now, I know it's a little confusing, all right? Rehoboam and Jeroboam, kind of hard to keep apart, but Rehoboam is the son of Solomon who Solomon uh, had chosen to be the next king. But Jeroboam had actually already been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. But he's not in Solomon's family. He's not even in the line of David. And so because of this, uh, Jeroboam actually had to run away from Israel during Solomon's lifetime to get away from Solomon. Okay? So just to keep that all in mind, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, uh, chosen as the next king, Jeroboam had run away 
He's coming back. Okay, 1 Kings 12. Just go to the next verse. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard that, heard that he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt, and so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. All right, now this is important because Jeroboam had been anointed king by God already, and he's going to Rehoboam and saying, Hey, if you will lighten our load, we will serve you. In other words, I'm willing to give up my rights as king if you make the right decision. That's what he's saying. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. And so the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them this, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. That was Rehoboam's response. And so here's what happens. This obviously infuriates Jeroboam, who who is willing to give up his kingship and, and, and the rest of Israel. I mean, after all, they have been under the reign of Solomon, who, let's face it, Solomon had a lot of pet projects. Okay, we talked about this the last time we, in chapter 13 when we talked about Solomon. He built for, now remember, he built the temple of God. All right, that was a huge project. took seven years and a lot of treasure, but he also built a palace for himself. And if you remember, that his palace took twice as long as the temple to build, so it was probably pretty majestic. At the same time, he also built a palace for one of his wives. And how did he pay for all of this? Taxes, right? He, he collected a lot of taxes from the nation of Israel. Now, how do they pay taxes? Well, they have to work harder. And so when they talk about this heavy yoke of labor that Solomon had put on them, that's what they're talking about. We have to work so hard just to pay for your projects, so will you lighten our load? You know, he's taxing the Israelites into oblivion. And here comes his son Rehoboam, his cocky son Rehoboam, and he's not listening to wise people. He's listening to his friends instead. You know, the kids he grew up with. I wonder in your life, have you ever ignored advice from someone who's wiser than you? You know, who had, who had been there before and instead taken advice from a friend or a family member or, or the friends you grew up with? I remember uh, Halloween night uh, when I was 12. So October 31st, 1982 is the date. So now you can all calculate my age. Um, Halloween night, 1982, uh, my friends and I had this, I was 12, so I was a little bit older, a little on the old side for Halloween, but my friends and I had this, um, this pattern that we would uh, go hit all the houses in the, the neighborhood around our house, and then we would go back to one of our houses and change costumes, and then, I know, I, but that was before I knew Jesus, and then um, we would go and hit the houses that had the best candy again. 
all right? And then sometimes we'd go back a third time with new costumes on. And so we had gone, made the rounds in our neighborhood, and uh, we were headed to my friend's house to change costumes, and we had some bullies jump out at us, push us down, and take our Halloween candy. Now, I know that sounds like something from the Sandlot, but it actually happened to me, okay? And so these bullies pushed us down and took our Halloween candy. Well, we were almost to my friend's house. Now, my friend's dad was an IPD police officer, Indianapolis Police Department. And so um, we got there, and we told him what happened, and he kind of chuckled because he was off duty, you know, or whatever. Uh, and so uh, we, were, we were changing costumes. We thought, okay, now we've got a lot of catching up to do. We've got a lot of candy to get, you know. And so, um, but as we were leaving, he gave us a can of pepper spray. And then at the last minute, I remember he pulled it away from us and he goes, now, I only want you to use this if you're in danger. All right? Do you understand? And we all, yes, sir, we understand. And so uh, my friend, who was his son, took the pepper spray and we got out of the house and we started to walk down the street and he goes, hey, you know what we should do? We should wait at his house for him to come home. Like instead of going trick-or-treating and going to get candy, we decided to wait at his house until this bully came home because we knew where one of them lived. And we thought, we'll wait in the bush and we'll ambush him. And that sounded to us um, like a lot more fun than going trick-or-treating the rest of the night. And so we did. We sat in his bush for about uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that, crouched down until this bully came home. And then we could see him walking down the street. Now, you know when you play hide-and-seek as a kid, how you, you get that jittery feeling? You get real nervous, right? And sometimes you, like, pee your pants just a little bit, you know? <laughs> so that's what we were doing. We're in this bush, and, and we're shaking it. And, and my friend's got this pepper spray, and, and you know, his hand's shaking, and, and this bully's coming down the street at us. And my friend, way too early, uh, jumps out of the bush and sprays this pepper spray. October 31st, 1982 was a very windy night, I remember. <laughs> And the wind was coming out of the west. I remember that because as my friend um, shot this pepper spray at the, uh, the perpetrator, um, the pepper spray flew back and hit us all in the eyes as we were watching what happened. And we spent the next about 15 minutes crying and trying to rub pepper spray out of our eyes while the bully either didn't see us or just didn't acknowledge us and walked on into his house and continued to eat our Halloween candy. In that case, we definitely should have listened to wise counsel. You know, we had in our ear someone who knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was dealing with. He was a police officer. He, he knew how to handle a situation. My friend's dad had wisdom that was relevant to the situation. But instead, we listened to the people who had advice that we wanted to hear. We listened to the kids we grew up with. Now, how often do we do that in our own lives? I mean, we're in this situation where we need help. We need guidance. It's, it's at this point you need to stop and ask this question. Where do you seek wisdom? Where do you seek wisdom? You know, maybe it's about our marriage or about how to raise our kids or how to deal with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your ex. But instead of going to that someone who might have good, godly wisdom about your situation, we go to the friends who we know will support what we want. They'll say what we want to hear. So you're wondering about that special someone in your life and you're wondering where that relationship's going and your friends are saying, danger, you know, danger, walk away but he's so cute and he works so hard and he has a nice car and he smells good and he says he's going to divorce her anyway. Where do you get your wisdom? Do you go looking for that one friend who's going to tell you, you know what? You deserve to be happy. You spend so much time investing in your kids, investing in your family. You deserve something, somebody that will make you happy. Or do you seek out wise counsel? Or you wonder about that job offer and you call up somebody who's worked there before and they say, don't do it. Don't go. The boss is a tyrant. You'll be sorry. But your wife says, you know what? It's more money. And so what if the boss is a little unstable? 
do it. Where do you seek your wisdom? Or students, high school students, you've been thinking about college. You're thinking about where to go, and your parents who've maybe actually been to college think that you should go to the academic school. But your friends who are barely squeaking through high school, they're saying you should go to the party school with them. You know, where do you seek your wisdom? Chances are you've seen in your life how the consequences of seeking wisdom from the wrong source can, can be devastating. I mean, you may not be dealing with a situation that could split a nation in two, but still, the decisions we make today will influence the rest of our lives in a positive or negative way. I mean, they will influence where we live and how we live and what happens to our kids if we have kids. And and our decisions can affect the generations to come in either a positive or a negative way. It's true at work. It's true in your family. It's true in your home. It's true in your school. Uh, I have a friend who says we only have to do two things in life. We have to make decisions and we have to live with the consequences of those decisions. Those are the only two things we need to do. And because the decisions we make have such an impact on our future, we need a guide. We, we need a question to ask ourselves whenever we're faced with an important decision that we think could change the course of our lives. And I'm going to give you a guide. I'm going to give you that question in just a minute. But first, let's go back to Israel. So what we have here is two kings, all right? We've got one chosen by God and one chosen by Solomon, the current king. And we all know what a great chance for success that has, Right? I mean, quick, name a successful country with two leaders. Name a great company, a great organization that has two presidents. You can't, can you? But there's a chance here to make it work because Jeroboam is willing to give up power if Rehoboam will just lighten the load on Israel. He said, if you do this, we'll be your servants. I, the anointed king, will be your servant. So what's it going to be? Well, when confronted with his question, Rehoboam sought wisdom from two places. We saw that. The wise men, who were his father's advisors and then the friends he grew up with. Uh, you know, who had, he, he had the wise men who had been there before and really understood the heart of the people and had been advising kings in the past, and then the friends he grew up with re- that really just knew they had a chance to grab power. And because Rehoboam chose to follow advice from the wrong source, it actually split the nation in two. I mean, Israel no longer was known as just Israel. It became two kingdoms. And so when faced with this decision, Rehoboam asked the wrong question. And the question that he asked, unfortunately, is the one that many of us ask when we're faced with an important decision. And the question is this, what choice benefits me now? What choice benefits me now? That's the wrong question, but it's the question that most of us ask. And when he asks that question, he gets the wrong answer. And here's what happens. Rehoboam says, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. He laid a heavy yoke on you. I'll make it even heavier. So the northern tribes defect. They don't want anything to do with Rehoboam or even the family of David anymore, so they splinter off. And it's actually a larger part of Israel that leaves than the part that stays. And and so Jeroboam becomes king of the north, uh, which is now called Israel. And Rehoboam stays king of the southern tribes, which is now called Judah. Um, So there's a king of the north and a king of the south, and the two nations are frequently at war. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see Israel and Judah sometimes fighting a common enemy, but sometimes fighting against each other. The, the people that should be united as God's special possession, his holy nation, are now divided and fighting amongst themselves. And it all started with the wrong question. What choice benefits me now? So if that's the wrong question, then what's the right question? What, what's the question that we should ask? You know, when we're faced with decisions that are big decisions, what's the right question? Well, let's look at the book of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, who's Rehoboam's father. 
And if you turn to Proverbs 2, you'll see some instruction that Solomon had written for his children, including Rehoboam, and yes, even for you and me as well. And so Proverbs 2, starting with verse 1, says this, My son, it's like he could have been written right into Rehoboam. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And so it's here that we get the basis for this one question. And this one question is, it's so simple, first of all, that you might feel a little bit ripped off. I just got to be honest. You might think, that's what I came to church for this morning, really? That's the question. It, but it's a, simple that, it's a question that maybe you know is the right one to ask, but you don't ask nearly often enough. It's a question that applies to every decision you make, whether you're married or single or in a relationship or it's complicated, uh, whether you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or a son or a daughter or a student or a kid or a boss or an employee. It's a question that's so powerful it can actually change the way you make decisions in your life. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. A couple of you are, so I'm going to give you the question. Here's the question. What's the wise choice? What's the wise choice? Do you get it? Are you hearing this? Because so often the question we ask is the one that Rehoboam asked. What's the choice that benefits me now? Me now. Okay? So in that question, there are two things. One, it's all about me. And two, it's all about now. The question we should ask is, what's the wise choice? There's a subtle but powerful difference. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's say uh, you you could uh, have a choice, okay? It may benefit you now to eat three donuts instead of going for a run. That's probably not the wise choice. It may benefit you now to spend your mortgage payment on a Caribbean vacation. But that's not the wise choice. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Because wisdom is to be sought after, Proverbs tells us. Let me tell you a few other things that Proverbs has to say about wisdom. We already read that wisdom guards the course of the just, that God, uh, through wisdom, guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. But we also see in verse 12, wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men. In in verse 16, we see wisdom will save you from the adulteress. In in Proverbs 3.8, wisdom from God will help bring health to your body. That's the donut question, maybe. Uh, Proverbs 3.14 says, Wisdom is more profitable than silver and more precious than rubies. And so we ask that question for every decision in every situation. What's the wise choice? Wisdom is to be desired, to be sought out, to be pursued. So how do we do that? Well, there are lots of places that we can seek wisdom these days. Maybe it's on the radio uh, with your favorite call-in show or that website that you go to for all your news. You know, maybe it's uh, with TV with Dr. Phil or Ellen or somebody like that who has seemingly lots of great wisdom looking for how to make the best decisions. You know, there are all kinds of self-help books out there uh, where you can learn to lean in or choose yourself or unthink. I even found some sources on the web where you can gain wisdom from kids. Wisdom like this, never trust a dog to watch your food. Good wisdom. Or this, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid, don't answer. That's good wisdom. Do not pull dad's finger when he tells you to. Great wisdom. Never tell your mom her diet's not working. Great wisdom. 
Or oh, I love this one. I found this letter from a child. It says this. It says, Dear Dad, why do you want to be a vegetarian? Did mom make you? If she did, you do not have to listen to her. She is not your boss. <laughs> so there are lots of places to get great wisdom. But the best wisdom for how to live comes from God. And as we seek wisdom from God, I believe that there are four ways to get it. There are probably more than this, but there are four that I came up with. These are in your notes if you want to follow along. So Proverbs 2, 1 through 3 gives us a good start. Let's look and see what it says. Proverbs 2, 1, again, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Okay, that's verse 1 and 2. So these two verses talk about one way to find wisdom, and it's through Scripture. The first way is Scripture. I mean, after all, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe, as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, then you should understand that God has a lot to say about our decisions. He has a a lot to say about our lives. But but even if you're not a Christian, if you don't know about this whole Jesus thing, uh, or you you like the idea of Jesus, but maybe you aren't so sure about Christians, like you're not sure you want to be lumped in with that group of crazies sometimes, Even then, you should know that there's a lot of great wisdom in this book right here. I mean, the book of Proverbs is a great place to start. And one of the things that we did as a church was we challenged you uh, while we were on break from the story for the last five weeks to read the book of Proverbs. Anybody been reading Proverbs lately? Anyone? A couple of you? Good, good. There's lots of great wisdom in here and instruction for our lives. So look to Scripture for wisdom. Proverbs 2, 3 continues. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding... You know, crying out for wisdom. That, we'd call that prayer. And that's number two. Number two is prayer. You can pray for wisdom. And in fact, the Bible tells us that that's what Solomon did, that he prayed for wisdom and became the wisest man in the world. And in your life and my life, you'd be surprised what happens if you just take time to pray for wisdom. You know, to settle down and meditate on one situation, on one decision that you're making, to, to ask God for help in that situation, to seek guidance from Him. Just, just quieting your soul for a while and getting away from everything else can give you you know, such clarity of thought. You wonder why you don't do it more often. For the third place we can go for wisdom, let's go to the New Testament book of Titus. Now, Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. And Titus was a young Christian, uh, one of Paul's apprentices in ministry. And in it, he outlines a model of discipleship. It's a model where older men are investing in younger men and older women are investing in younger women. And in Titus 2, 7, and 8, he writes this. He says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech uh, that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. And so that means that the third place that we can gain wisdom is from godly counsel. You know, if you're a young man or a young woman, or even if you're older but you're young in your faith, You know, you should make it your business to get around wise people who are just a step or two ahead of where you want to be in life. You know, people who are already where you want to go. People who live a godly life, one that's worth emulating. And if you're a little bit older, you know, if you're a little bit more advanced in your faith, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, well, you might still need that too. But you might also make it your business to find a younger person to invest in or two. You know, if you're a man who's been a Christian for a while, maybe you need to, you know, find a younger man to invest in. If you're a a woman, find a younger lady to invest in and and to to bring along in their faith. To find someone that you share common interests with, okay, but be intentional about investing in him or in her. It will pay dividends for them for sure, but I promise you it will also pay dividends for you. So finally, I think there's a fourth way that we can acquire wisdom. 
And this also comes from the New Testament. You know, after Jesus died, there's this story in the book of Acts about Peter and John. Peter and John were two of Jesus' disciples. And they go into the temple courts, and, and there's a beggar there who can't walk, and he's asking for money. And Peter says, well, I don't have any money, but this I give you, get up and walk. And, and, and the beggar gets up and walks into the temple courts, and people are so astonished by this. They've seen him for so long that they decide that they need to find out how Peter and John have been able to have this kind of power. And so they, they arrest them. They bring them in to appear before the court. And, and there they give this impassioned plea. Peter and John, two disciples of Jesus, give this impassioned plea uh, this incredibly eloquent and bold defense of their faith and how Jesus is the only name who can save. And, and it's so powerful. It's such a great speech. It's so well thought out that even though the people in the court don't agree with them, they have no choice but to let Peter and John go. And at the end of that event, Acts tells us, the writer of Acts tells us, that the people took note that these were ordinary, unschooled men, but they had been with Jesus. And I think that's the fourth way we can get wisdom. It's this, follow Jesus, to follow Jesus. In his life, Jesus was willing to impart anyone, wisdom to anyone who followed him. He would impart wisdom on anyone who asked. Anyone who desired wisdom could come to Jesus and walk away with an answer. Now, it wasn't always the answer they wanted, but it was always the right answer. And if you're asking yourself in any, every decision, what's the wise choice, it's always a good decision to think about what would Jesus do in this situation. You know, I'd like for people at the end of my life to say the same thing about me that they said about Peter and John. See, I'm kind of smart, but I'm by far not the smartest person I know. And I have some gifts, but I have friends that have way more gifts than I do. I try to be generous, but some of you are way more generous than I am. But I'd love for people to look at my life and at the end of life say, you know, I can tell he's been with Jesus. He's just an ordinary guy, but I know he's been with Jesus. I can't think of a wiser choice to make for you or for me. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much that you have such great wisdom, first of all, and that you offer it to us, that you've given us your entire word uh, to seek wisdom, to, to find ways to make good decisions, that you offer us through a relationship with Jesus uh, the chance not just for heaven for the rest of eternity, but to have a great life now. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this week and decision after decision comes at us, that we can, we can avoid uh, the pitfall of the question we usually ask, how, what, what choice benefits me now, and look to the question that you would have us ask, which is what's the wise choice? God, we all need wisdom in our lives. We need wisdom uh, to know how to lead our families. We need wisdom to know how to be the best employee we can be. We need wisdom to lead the people around us. We need wisdom to be a good neighbor. We need wisdom to be a good parent. And we need wisdom to be a good Christ follower. And so I just pray this week that as we ask these questions, as we make these decisions, as we go through our day-to-day -day routine and questions are coming at us from every direction, that we uh, have the time, the forethought to stop and seek your wisdom, to seek your knowledge and to know that, that you already got an answer to this. Lord, every situation we face, every, every time we have, that no matter how difficult the situation seems, we're not the first person that's been there that you've gone before, that you've already got it in your hands. And so, God, we just thank you for that. We praise you for that. We know that you have it handled if we will just look to you and seek your wisdom. God, thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.